So Genesis 37, verse 12. Uh, so far in the story, Joseph has been given uh, a coat by his father, which has marked him out as the favourite, and the brothers are unimpressed. The 11 brothers are unimpressed. And Joseph has also had two dreams, uh, two dreams, both of which give the same message, which is that one day he's going to be a ruler and his brothers are going to bow down before him. So that's what happened in the story so far. So verse 12, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him down into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand in order to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up, lift him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colours and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. It's a famous story, isn't it? The story of Joseph is one of those stories that's known, uh, even to some extent, outside church circles. Uh, everyone enjoys a good story. But, but who you are makes a huge difference to how you hear a story. So I was reading a book earlier in the year, uh, it's a book called Road of Bones. It's about uh, part of the Second World War that was fought in, fought in Burma. Uh, and in there, there's one short paragraph that says this. It tells about the experience of a Lieutenant Geoffrey Page, 
of the 8th Lancashire Fusiliers. And in that book, let me read you a small section. Uh, Geoffrey Page led small patrols which spied on the Japanese lines of communication around Kohima. It was terrible, he said. I was frightened to death most of the time. You spent your time with a platoon or just two or three chaps miles behind the Japanese lines. You got terrified. When I got back to the unit, I broke down and cried. It was the mental strain and stress and the relief when you got back safe. Some patrols lasted a few hours. The worst one lasted all day because we were several miles to the east of where we were spying on the lines of communication. He goes on to tell a story about uh, being on patrol, all quiet in the, in the depths of the jungle, and the guy next to him suddenly, bang, shot dead. Didn't see where, a sniper got him. Now, now that's a story in this book, Fergal Keane, Road of Bones. And it's a story that sort of might interest you a little bit if you're into history. Uh, but it but jumped out to me and my family in particular, because Lieutenant Geoffrey Page is my grandfather. Okay, no one knew he'd been interviewed for the book, and he's just a everyday soldier in the army. It was nothing special. They obviously dug him out and interviewed him. And so that story, for me, has particular resonance. If, if that bullet had been a foot to the left and hit my grandpa, well, I wouldn't be here today. Who we are affects dramatically how we hear stories. And sometimes it's easy to forget that the book of Genesis wasn't written first and foremost for us. I mean, it is written for us in that we were the ones who receive it down the centuries, but we're not the first people for whom it was written. The book of Genesis was written by Moses uh, in the wilderness, just after it, the, uh, the Israelites had escaped from Egypt. They'd got to Mount Sinai, where they were given the Ten Commandments. Uh, and then, then Moses wrote, actually, the first five books of the Bible, sometime between Mount Sinai and, well, getting into the Promised Land. We know that because Jesus says that Moses wrote those books, and we know that Moses died before they got into the Promised Land, so he must have written it sometime between those two points. So the, so the point is, the story we're reading this morning was, first of all, written for the Israelites. Who are the Israelites? The Israelites are the descendants of the 12 brothers we're reading about. Uh, The Israelites were God's people, but they were in these 12 clans. And each of the clans was named after one of the brothers and descended from one of these 12 brothers. So there's the clan of Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Gad and Naphtali and Dan and Asher and on we go. So, So when they were hearing these stories... Uh, they'd be thinking, that's me, or rather that's grandpa, or great-great-grandpa, or I don't know how many generations. Okay, this is us, this is, this is our story. So in that sense, the, this narrative in Genesis 37 is like an origin story. Children, if you like kind of superhero stories, lots of superhero stories like Batman or Superman, at some point tell you how they became a superhero. So Spider-Man was bitten, wasn't he, by a, by a radioactive spider, and that made him kind of super-powered. And Batman, I think Batman saw his mum and dad get killed and so he got all kind of grumpy about it and decided to become a superhero. Well, this is the origin story of God's people. And so, therefore, it's an origin story for us. If you are someone who's counting yourself as part of the church, the, the, the same roots apply for us. And if you're not, if you're not convinced yet about Christianity, this all, I hope this morning's story will just give you a bit of a better flavour of what it means to actually be part of God's church, God's people. So let's dive in and look at... Uh, This morning, really three ingredients, if you like, in the creation of God's people. I'm going to start by looking at the brothers. And the brothers tell us that the church is built by grace. The church is built by grace. Uh, Let's make sure we're clear on the story. Joseph, uh, at the start of the story, we're told three times he's going to be sent to this place, Shechem. Three times the same place is renamed. Shechem, Shechem, Shechem. 
And again, it might not mean much to us because we've dived in at chapter 37. But, but if we'd been reading all the way through, we'd know Shechem is a dangerous place to go. Shechem is the place where a few chapters earlier, Simeon and Levi, two of those brothers, have slaughtered a whole village, okay, a whole tribe of people. So, so saying Joseph is being sent to Shechem has the same kind of resonances for them as if, I suppose nowadays, if someone was sent to the Somme. Okay, we, we know, don't we, the Somme is a place of battle and, and bloodshed and warfare. It just begins to ring ominous bells. Uh, so off he goes to Shechem, Joseph, the brother, sent by Jacob, the dad, to, to find the other brothers who are out watching the sheep somewhere. Okay, they're fetching um, or looking after the sheep uh, away from home. And coincidentally, he bumps into a man who happens to know they've moved on, gone to Dothan. We'll return to that later. And so he sent, and eventually he, he spots them, or rather they spot him. Do you see verse 18? They see him from afar. Perhaps it's the multicolored coat, like a red rag to the bull. And what do they decide? Well, verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. It's the first time that sort of kill murder word has come up in the Bible since Genesis chapter 4, where Cain murdered Abel, okay, the elder brother, married the younger brother. And here again, this, this special kind of murder word has come back up. And it's brothers murdering brothers again, or at least planning to. Uh, last week, we saw they were jealous of Joseph. They hated him. They hated the fact he was the favourite. They hated the fact that God had promised that he would be the one that's raised up. And here, if you like, their desire gives birth to action. And they decide, right, Let's do away with him. But thankfully, the eldest of the brothers, Reuben, comes in to save the day. Verse 21, Reuben hears it and says, look, calm down, everybody. We, we can't kill him. He's our brother. We shouldn't shed blood. So instead, let's just throw him into a pit. Now, in the Middle East, as you can imagine, back in those days, there was not a lot of water around. So they would gather water in these huge sort of underground cisterns. They'd have a narrow entrance at the top and they'd kind of expand out as they dug down below uh, into the limestone. So it'd be completely impossible to get out of once you're in. Don't imagine a big kind of hole you could just scrub up the side. It's a, it's a proper kind of plop, in you go. And, well, you're not getting out again, not without a rope or a ladder. It was empty, thankfully, we're told that. But still, once Joseph's in the pit, he's not coming out, at least without someone rescuing him. And actually, it turns out that's Reuben's plan. Uh, the narrator gives us a little kind of hint uh, and says that Reuben was planning to come back later and rescue him, take him back to his father. But it seems that Reuben, we're not told this, but it seems Reuben then goes off the scene. Maybe he goes off to look after the sheep or fetch something or who knows. Because as they sit down to celebrate getting rid of their brother, chucking him in the pit, uh, they see, well, they see children. You see what they see? They see a caravan. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, someone driving through the desert, pulling a kind of mobile home. A caravan is a bunch of traders, okay, a bunch of uh, travellers who are selling things, probably on camels, who are coming through. Uh, through the desert on the road. And they think, well, Judah thinks, brilliant, this is our opportunity. Okay, we want rid of him, but we know it's kind of bad to murder, so let's just sell him. We're not going to get any money if we just chuck him in the pit, so let's sell him. So they sell him to these Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Uh, Ishmael, uh, if you remember early in the story, Ishmael, uh, was one of Abraham's sons. Abraham was the father of Jewish people. He had two sons, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael himself had grown into be a great nation. In fact, Genesis tells us he had 12 sons too. So the Ishmaelites are a bit like the kind of anti-church, okay? the opposite of the church. And so these brothers hand Joseph over to the Ishmaelites. 
but they've got to cover it up. So what do they do? Did you notice what they do to trick their dad when we had the reading? What do they do? Abs, what do they do? Exactly, brilliant. They deceive Jacob. They think we've got to do something. We can't just pretend we never saw him. So they kill a goat. They take his robe that they've stripped off him. Time and again, we're told they strip the robe off. They really don't like this robe. And they dip it in the blood of a goat. And then they act all innocent. See, they, they, they send it ahead to the father with a message. We, we found this coat. Does it, does it look familiar to you? Of course, they know very well whose it is. And so does Jacob. He mourns, he weeps. And in fact, he says he'll never be comforted. When he says, I'll go down to Sheol, it means the grave. I'm going to go down to the grave. I'm never going to be happy again. I'll never end my mourning. There's a horrible irony there. Uh, again, the, these stories in Genesis kind of weave together, right from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 50. There's a horrible irony of Jacob being deceived by a, a dead goat and a coat, because that's exactly what he did to his dad. Okay, when, when, he, when he wanted to steal the inheritance of his older brother, uh, he knew that his dad w- was failing in sight, that he couldn't really see anymore. But, so he knew that, that his dad, when he wanted to pass on the inheritance, w- would reach out and touch the son to check it was the right son, but, but Jacob knew that his older brother, Esau, was kind of hairy and tough, whereas Jacob was a bit kind of smooth-skinned and effeminate. And so what did he do? He killed a goat and put the skin on himself. And so when his dad reached out, he felt this kind of hairy skin and thought, oh, that must be Esau. And so he gave Jacob the blessing. Jacob tricked his dad out of a blessing, an inheritance. And here he is, tricked with the same two things, a goat and a goat. What's going on? I mean, it's a sort of family melodrama story, isn't it? It would make great TV. But what's going on? Why are we told this story? What's it doing in the Bible? Well, remember, it's an origin story. For, for those first hearing it, these are your great, 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 great grandparents, the Israelites would hear. And as we go through the story, just, just think, they, they've just been given the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Just think how those Ten Commandments compare to the brothers. So what do we see then? First of all, we see them planning murder. Well, that's the sixth commandment broken. Oh, we see them dishonour their father, very obviously. Well, that's the fifth commandment broken. Oh, we see them bearing false witness, lying, okay, obviously covering up their sin. That's the ninth commandment broken. Oh, we've seen them already in chapter 37, full of jealousy and covetousness. That's the tenth commandment broken. In fact, there are even more. Deuteronomy tells us, Deuteronomy is one of those books that gives us lots of God's laws. Deuteronomy tells us, and the Israelites would have just heard this at Mount Sinai. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If you sell someone into your slavery, one of your brothers into slavery, you deserve to die. And actually, it says you're a thief. You're stealing someone's life. So there goes the seventh commandment as well. Fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth. All gone, all broken. By the founding figures of the church. In fact, I rushed over that. The seventh, the adultery that we read this morning. In the story we've just read, actually, none of them do commit adultery. And it might be that the people of one tribe are thinking, well, we're the goodies. Joel, did you notice in the story, who'd seem to be the goody in the story? One brother wanted to rescue Joseph and not kill him. Did you get his name yet? Brilliant, Reuben. That's it, Reuben, as we read the story we read this morning, seems like the goody. So you can imagine the Reubenites 
in the desert, looking at everyone else, you know, the Simeonites, the Levites, thinking, oh, look at you scumbags. We were the goodies. But actually, what we read just a chapter earlier, Reuben was the one who'd slept with his father's wife, Bilhah. It was Reuben the one who broke the seventh commandment, adultery. Uh, he was no virtuous exception. All the brothers commit terrible sin. In fact, all those commandments that are anything to do with how we treat one another are all broken. 5 through 10. So as Israel listens at Sinai, it's going to be pretty gutting for them. They're thinking, this is my family. I don't know if you've you ever seen that show um, on BBC, Who Do You Think You Are? I think that's what it's called. The family history show where you trace, um, celebrities trace who their ancestors are. And I assume it normally it's, they work pretty hard to find sort of nice stories and positive stories. Just occasionally it goes wrong. So Ainsley Harriet, who's the, the TV chef, um, discovered that his great-great-grandmother was a slave uh, who was brought over to, the, uh, to England. You know, well, fair, 200 years ago now. Uh, he got very emotional about it. You know, he's a descendant of, uh, of slaves. And so they, they traced the family. They went over to the West Indies where she'd been trafficked from. And he discovered there that his great-great-great-grandfather was actually a white slave owner. And you can imagine just completely gutted. There was all the kind of empathy of, of feeling for his great-great-grandmother who'd been trafficked in slavery. And then he finds out that his great-great-great-grandfather was the one doing it. Another TV presenter, a girl called Emma Willis, found that one of her relatives was involved in kidnapping, torturing, and stabbing a blacksmith. And her quote was, that was exactly what I didn't want to find out. <laughs> That's pretty specific, isn't it? Okay, you, you dig back into your family origins, and actually they're pretty grim, certainly for Israel. So, so why record the story? Why not kind of paper over it? Why not, if you're trying to tell the story of how God formed his people... Why not make up a better story, a more positive story? Well, because the people of Israel are being taught, God's people are being taught, they're formed, they became God's people, not because they were super holy, super good, super religious, but rather purely because God was good to them, kind to them, gracious to them. They have no reason to boast. Again, if you know the New Testament, you might hear some of the echoes already. Time and again in the New Testament, an apostle like Paul will write to God's people and remind them that the reason they are God's people, the reason they've been forgiven, the reason they're going to heaven, the reason that, that God is their father and they are the children is because God has been gracious to them. Not because they were wonderfully pure or clever or worked out that God existed or were rewarded for their virtuous lives, but purely because God was gracious. It was a free gift. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that our own roots, all of us, our own roots go back uh, to those who sin greatly. The whole Bible story starts with Adam, the first human, rebelling against God. And Paul tells us that since then we've all just turned away from him. So none of us in our origins have a happy start. And although that would be humbling for the Israelites and should be humbling for us when we learn the same truths, it should also be hugely encouraging if there was no great standard you had to meet to become a Christian, to get into God's people, then there can be no great standard you have to keep to stay in. Sometimes we sing that, that hymn, Amazing Grace. Do you remember the line? It was grace that's brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Uh, the Christian life isn't one where you begin by being forgiven and God being kind to you, and then from then onwards you're kind of on your own. Now, the Christian life from day one through to the final day, is one of grace. 
we contribute nothing to being adopted as a children. And so in that sense, we can do nothing to stuff it up. So St. Francis of Assisi, a good while ago now, the one who was meant to be good with animals, uh, founded this, this huge movement and all sorts of preachers went out across Europe and someone stopped him once and said, why you? Okay, why are you? Why did God choose you to be the start of this great movement? And his answer was, because God could find no one more worthless. Okay, he understands it. God didn't choose him to change the face of Europe because he was great or talented or holy or... No, because God could find none more worthless. And I love this quote. I, I don't know if I can get this across, kind of reading it out. This was a danger of reading quotes. But I love this quote from a guy who was a... Uh, he's called John Caper Farah. He was, a, he was a minister and a theologian and a chef. Okay, weird combination of jobs, isn't it? Professional theologian and a chef. And he's reflecting on the time of what's called the Reformation, okay, the time of Martin Luther and John Calvin, those kind of people, where, where, where people in the church discovered that actually they'd forgotten that God was a God of grace. They'd begun to think that actually we earned our salvation, we earned our place in God's kingdom. And then in the Reformation, they, they, they rediscovered that the Bible taught exactly the opposite. It's by grace alone. And Capon says this, the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they discovered in the dusty basement a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure distillate of scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. At the word of the gospel, after all these centuries of trying to lift yourself up into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness, not the flowers that bloom in spring, could be allowed to enter in the case. There's nothing you did to make yourself a Christian. See what he's saying? It's like the best, finest whiskey. You drink it straight. Now, that is how God treats you. So how do you feel about yourself as a Christian? Do you feel like you're a bad Christian or a failing Christian, a Christian who can't keep going, a Christian who thinks it's too hard? Perhaps some of you just moved to, to Leeds, you're starting in a new career or starting studying at university and the, the pressure just seems too great. How will I be able to keep going? I don't see many of us. I was at a meeting about a week ago where uh, a guy who sort of knows the national scene pretty well reckoned there's about 160,000 evangelicals at the more kind of Bible-believing end of the spectrum. In the whole of the UK, 160,000 in the whole of the UK. That is nothing, is it? Drop in the ocean now, complete minority. I'm sorry to tell you that. If you're, if you're a sort of orthodox Christian nowadays, you're a massive minority. Massive minority. So how do you keep going? Well, there's a strange comfort in realising, isn't there, that actually nothing we do will keep us going. Rather, is God's grace alone that protects and keeps us. Maybe the last week has been a disaster. Maybe you're fresher and it's all gone horribly wrong. I don't know. Move to the city and, well, you've not surprised God. You are what he deals in. Sinners is God's currency. He doesn't need you to contribute. So the story of the brothers reminds us that the church is built purely on grace and by nothing that we contribute at all. But there's another character, isn't there? There's Joseph as well. If the church is built on, on the grace of God, well, Joseph shows us that the church is also built on the suffering of the Son. Uh, last week, if, if, if you stop at verse 11 of chapter 7, last week we, we'd see Joseph and we'd think, well, pretty much that God loves him and has got a wonderful plan for his life. He gets these dreams that he's going to be raised up on high and everyone else will bow before him. 
it looks like it's going to be a tremendously happy story for Joseph. I'm sure his brothers hated him, but, but nothing too much had gone wrong in his life. He was the favourite son. He got the special clothes. He got to stay at home when the others were sent out into the fields to do the hard work shepherding. But this week, well, this week, as the story we read earlier shows, that that, that hatred of the brothers had borne fruit. Just on, this, on that, by the way, there's a fascinating move, isn't there, between the brothers hating Joseph in the first half of the story, verses 1 to 11, which you saw last week, but not really doing anything about it. They just keep it in their hearts. They, tr- they hate him. They nurture the hatred and the jealousy, but they don't do anything because they're all at home. And it's only when they're away, away from their father, that they risk doing anything. Okay, why don't they just lynch him at home? Well, because they don't want the father to know. They don't want Jacob to, to spot that they've killed him. So you see, what's stopping them sinning in the first half of the story? What's stopping them sinning isn't righteousness or holiness or anything like that. The only thing that's stopping them sinning is they don't want to get caught. And once they, they have an opportunity to do it in a way that means they won't be caught, they're at it. Uh, that is a warning to us all, I think. Uh, very often we, we think, as long as, I, as long as I don't act on the, sort of, the desires I have in my heart, everything will be okay. But actually, the, the Bible probes us at a deeper level. God, God's concerned not just about what we do, but about our desires, about, about what we want, if you like. So, of course, it is better to restrain, if you hate someone, of course it's better to restrain yourself from actually physically hurting them, and if you like, just hate them. But, but that's not good enough. God wants to deal with us at the level of desire. Of course, if, if you begin to be attracted to someone who's not your spouse, of course it's better not to act on it. But again, God really wants to deal with the sin in your heart. The book of James talks about desire giving birth to sin. It's the, the wrong desires in our hearts conceive, And it's only when, when given an opportunity that we sin. And very often that's the case, isn't it? If you're treasuring desires in your heart that you know are wrong but you're consoling yourself with the fact that you're not acting on them, be very careful. Often it's just the fact that we don't want to get caught that's restraining us for now. And when we, when we get away and no one's looking, well, then we act on them. Like, I, I don't know if you have moments in your life where you can sort of, almost like a freeze frame, you can see the moment. I can remember, I became a Christian in my teens at school, and I can remember standing in one particular room at school, talking to a friend who wasn't a Christian, and he, him saying to me, um, oh, you're just being good because... Um, you know, you don't want to be caught and because, you know, you're like Mr. Wilkinson, who was the Christian teacher who ran the meeting. And, you know, um, and I, I said to him, no, 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 I would never do. And I listed this list of things. I would never do X, Y, Z, you know, all the rest of it. And he said, yeah, yeah, you would. It's just that you don't want to get caught at school. And we had this argument back and forth. I can remember where I was standing, clear as daylight. Six months, that was my last year at school. Six months later, I left school, was working out in Norfolk, completely free, had a salary, could do what I want. And he was exactly right and I was exactly wrong. Completely Completely, I completely walked away from the Lord, completely went off the rails, doing all sorts of things I shouldn't be doing. And suddenly the flashback came to how proud I was to start with. Just, just because I'd managed to restrain the desires didn't mean that I'd dealt with the sin. The brothers are a real warning to us there. As is Jacob, by the way, for those of you who've got children. Jacob is hugely naive about his kids, about his sons. He never accuses them, never seems to realise that it's them that's, uh, that's killed Jacob or got rid of Joseph, sorry. We can be so naive about our children in particular. But anyway, Joseph, what is his path? He's, he's promised that he's going to be glorified. He's going to be a, a great ruler. But what's the path? Well, this part of Genesis 37 reveals the path, and it's a path of great suffering. It's not a path where Joseph just goes straight to glory. He has a, well, he has a deep 
dark walk to get through first. Uh, uh, what happens to him in the story? Well, he, he's stripped of his robe. He's sold for silver. He's betrayed by his own brothers. He's handed over to Ishmael, that half-brother, that half-family sort of family relations, who in turn then hand him over to the Egyptians. He's sold to Egypt, hand him over to the Gentiles. He's cast into the pit before eventually being raised up uh, right at the end of our story, pulled out and traded. Does that, does, that, does that ring any bells? If I hadn't read the story of Joseph and just, just said, who, who in the Bible is betrayed by his brothers, stripped, sold for silver, uh, handed over to the kind of half-caste and then fully to the Gentiles? Uh, whose death in the Bible is described as being cast into the pit? What do you say? Jesus. The Psalms time and time again call Jesus' death or refer to Jesus' death as a, a casting into the pit. Of course, Joseph never fully dies when he goes down. He's kind of symbolically buried. He never actually ceases to breathe, never actually dies. Jesus fully goes down to the pit and dies before being raised to life. Uh, Jesus is betrayed by his brothers, by the 12 disciples. Judas in particular, who sells him for 30 pieces of silver. He's handed over to Herod, who himself is an Edomite. And the Edomites are not full Gentiles. They're, again, these kind of half-brothers descended from Esau, a bit like the Ishmaelites, who ultimately hand him over to the full Gentiles, the Romans, to deal with him. Verses 19 and 20 uh, of our passage. Even what the brothers say to Joseph, here comes this dreamer, dreamer, come, let's kill him, has echoes of one of Jesus' parables. Remember the parable of the vineyard where the, uh, the vineyard is God's kingdom and uh, the servants in the vineyard want to steal it from the father. And, and so the father sends servants who represent prophets and they, they beat them up and get rid of them. And so the father says, right, I will send my son. They'll respect the son. And in Jesus' words, when, when the son turns up, what, what do the, the tenants who represent the Jewish leadership say? This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Very reminiscent of the, the brothers and Joseph. Uh, Joseph is a picture of the suffering of Christ. Christ was told he would raise, reign in glory. Okay? He knew that he would rise from the dead and be exalted to the right hand of the Father, but the path was one of suffering for him. Uh, Joseph is a picture of Christ. And therefore, how he's a picture of how God is going to be able to provide grace. Sometimes we think of grace as just God sort of looking at us and saying, do you know what, you've done terrible things, but... Hey, I'm nice. I'll let you off. God can't do that. Do you know, he, he can't. He must punish sin. He can't just click his fingers and say, let's forget about it. Let's tidy it away. I'm God. I can do what I want. Even God can't do anything he wants. He's just, so he must punish sin. And that's why Christ comes. He comes to die, to pay the penalty for your sin, to be cast into the pit so that you never have to be. And that is why the church is a community of grace. Why God can make us a community of grace. Because our punishment has been paid. Everything you've done wrong, every corruption, every stain, every ounce of guilt that is laid upon you, you don't just have to sort of hope that God forgets. You can look it straight in the eye and see that Christ has taken it to the cross and dealt with it. Nothing you've done is too bad for Christ. And that's why, finally, and much more briefly, we can trust what's called the providence of the Father. The church is built by the grace of God through the suffering of the Son. It comes into being through the, the providence of the Father. Providence is just a, one of those words that people use to describe God's 
sovereignty over history. Okay? He's controlling of history. And, and God is the last character at work in Genesis 37. He's never named. I mentioned this last week. You'll not see the word God all the way through Genesis 37. Okay, there's nothing about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, or God, or Yahweh, or the Lord. Nothing. But he's at work. He's the one who sends the random man. So when Joseph's walking around in the field, he just happens to bump into the guy who just happens to see where the brothers have gone. He's the one who sends the, the Ishmaelites along. So they just happen to be passing at just the right moment and going in the right direction to Egypt to buy a slave and sell him. God will get his man on the throne. His plan is to get Joseph to be king, or king's right-hand man. But the plan is to get him to be king in Egypt. And so he will arrange the pieces so that it does happen. Uh, despite the sin, okay, the, the, brothers, the brothers want to, to, to hijack God's plan. Uh, the brothers want to throw God's plan off track. Let's see what becomes of his dreams, they say. It's a crucial verse. Let's see what becomes of his dreams. They think by killing Joseph or selling him into slavery, they're going to stop God's plan. But nothing stops God's plan. Even their sin was part of his plan. Not that he made them sin. So God in the Bible is never the author of sin. He never makes a sin. But he's still sovereign over it. It doesn't catch him out. Your sin or the sin of others against you hasn't caught God by surprise. It can't stop his plan to get Christ on the throne and everyone bow down and recognise him. And that's the great thing about those dreams. Remember the dreams where, where Joseph was there and the stars and the sun and the moon were bowing down to him. Or Joseph had, it was the big sheaf of corn, the little sheaves were bowing down to him. The great thing about the dreams were they weren't just about the big sheaf or about Joseph. They were also about the smaller ones bowing down. Apply that to Christ. God's promise is that one day Christ will have a great kingdom millions upon millions bang down before him that is good news for christ but it's also good news for us because god needs to save people and get them into heaven in order that there will be people there to praise christ so everything he does en route in your life has the purpose of saving you rescuing you it might well be in fact almost certainly it will involve suffering and you may well not understand why that suffering is happening. Joseph, when he's in the pit, doesn't get another dream or a little message from God or an angel kind of dropping down the spout saying, don't worry, all part of the plan. He just has to trust the word that's already come to him. Well, so too with us. Many times in your life, you won't understand why you are suffering, why things have gone wrong. And God, almost never, maybe never, actually tells us why we're going through particular suffering but what the, the story of genesis shows us as it points us forward to christ is that everything he's doing in your life ultimately is for your good is to get you into that heavenly kingdom whatever the circumstances whether you've been betrayed by people like joseph where the circumstances have just crushed over you and you can't see a way out you have had the promise once you put your trust in Christ, he will never abandon you. He will carry you safely home. And it may be that's all you can cling on to now, the promise of your future rescue. You might not see a way out of the circumstances, but that's okay. God will not abandon you. So the question to ask yourself is not, am I strong enough to hold on to God? Because the gospel isn't about you holding on to God in the first place. The question to ask yourself is, is God strong enough to hold on to me? And of course the answer is yes. It's grace again. Grace brought me safe this far and grace will lead me home.
So what does Joseph teach us? Certainly the story of Joseph teaches us that God is a God of grace who gathers his church purely out of his love and kindness and forgiveness. But I think it teaches us more. It teaches us that just as he began, he will preserve and keep you through all the ups and the downs. No one may know what you're going through at the moment, but God does. No one may understand it, but God does. No one may see the purpose, but God does. And that's why it's such appealing life. It may be that you're very sceptical about the claims of the Christian faith. But can you see how wonderful it would be to, to, to have a God who did know the end from the beginning, who had planned everything, who, who, who always knew your path and from whose care you can never wander. Life can be a scary, scary journey, can't it? None of us, if we're honest, understand it. None of us can cope with it. None of us can stand on our own two feet. God's promise through these stories and ultimately through Christ is that if you come to him for that mercy and forgiveness, not only will he forgive and cast your sins away, but he will adopt you as his child. And then you have the heavenly father, the king of the universe on the throne, promising to bring you through until that day when there'll be no more mourning or weeping, no more suffering, no more sin, but just glory and eternal everlasting rest and peace. That's the promise in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we don't pretend to understand your plans for the universe, still less your plans for our lives. Our Father, we don't pretend to better explain everything that's going on in the world around us. And nor do we pretend that we're strong enough on our own uh, to walk through life, head held high, unscathed. And so we praise you that you have sent Christ, that we have a a God, a saviour who knows what it is to suffer, who has been into the depths of the pit and therefore is able to sympathise with us in our weakness and our struggles. And we praise you that just as you raised him up from the the dead, uh, just as you raised him up ultimately to sit at your right hand in heaven, so too you've promised that his people will be with him, that he will be a king to a people, a husband to a bride, a shepherd to many sheep. So Father, uh, lift our eyes to him, we pray. And with your spirit, Uh, Give us faith to hold that cast iron promise that those he has gathered, he will never abandon. Uh, This we ask in his name. Amen.